I'm Sherry Sylvester. Since October 7th, we have watched the bigotry of anti-Semitism overwhelm college campuses and larger communities across America. In Austin, we have seen large pro-Palestinian demonstrations organized by the University of Texas, a public taxpayer-supported academic institution, complete with horseback riders carrying Palestinian flags, right here on Congress Avenue. After the attack, our policy experts presented a live stream primer where we discussed the link between support for Hamas and the woke agenda in America. Rabbi Dan Ain joined us for that discussion and provided important perspective on the history of this battle and how it is playing out in other parts of the country. Today I want to talk with him about how the Jewish community in Austin and in Texas and in America is coping with the continued strife 67 days later, while the war is still waging in Israel and many people have friends and family there who are in harm's way. Rabbi Dan Ain is the founder of Moon Tower Minion in Austin. He finds holiness through facilitating honest conversation, something we do here at Ninth and Congress, promoting tradition and ritual and creating space where people can exchange freely ideas within the context of Judaism. After his ordination from the Jewish Theological Seminary, Rabbi Ain served as the rabbi of the New Shul in Manhattan and was director of tradition and innovation at New York City's 92nd Street Y. He founded the Brooklyn-based organization Because Jewish and served as senior rabbi of Congregation Beth Shalom in San Francisco from 2018 to 22. When he relocated to Austin, he's going to tell us about that. <laughs> Welcome, Rabbi Dan. Thank you, Sherry. I appreciate being here. How'd you get to Texas? Oh, I got to Texas um, uh, via a couple of wonderful uh, board members, actually, of the TPPF. Uh, we, I served as the rabbi of Congregation Beshalom in San Francisco for four years. Uh, and in that time in San Francisco, um, especially through COVID, I think I learned a lot about um, the Jewish community, mm -hmm. uh, in particular about the Bay Area. Uh, and we found as a family that that was not going to be a home for us. I found that the type of rabbinics that I had strove to practice previously to that could not be practiced in the Bay Area. Um, one of the things I like to do, Sherry, is ask hard questions, um, give provoking ideas for the sake of sometimes provocation, uh, get people to think differently about the world in which we live, sometimes add a biblical element to it, sometimes challenge people's biblical perceptions or notions to provide a wider, richer sense of the world we live in. So the great role of a rabbi, as I've always understood it, uh, is to not answer questions with answers, but rather to answer a question with a question, to go deeper, always going deeper. And I think, unfortunately, in this century, I, I have a lot of blame for the technological century that we're in. I think it's led a lot of people, influencers, social media influencers, even clergy folks to want to give answers, simple answers out there. Historically, the rabbi has always been one to uh, reluctantly give an answer, but rather to just ask a question to challenge the questioner to think a little bit more deeply about what's going on. And I found that uh, in San Francisco, uh, with issues of DEI and with issues surrounding the pandemic, that those questions were not welcome. Uh, and as a result of that, thankfully, with the help of some wonderful people who lived in Austin, uh, they brought us into our 
we we had a rough time uh, and we relocated here to Texas and then a couple brought us in and they looked at me and my two kids and they said you remind us of a family that we saved and rescued from communist Russia in the 80s <laughs> and I have to tell you Sherry right it's like it's farcical but I mean I was I'm from New York right so mm -hmm. I was there we had rallies when Natan Sharansky was freed like my whole family went we supported you know Russian refuseniks um, but that really hit me right in the heart because so much of what we had experienced was the inability to practice the way we wanted to practice, the inability for me to rabbi in the fashion that I wanted to, to rabbi. How did that, I mean, San Francisco is, is the uh, epicenter of wokeism in the country, but how did that happen in the Jewish community? I mean, you're not the only rabbi that answers a question with a question. <laughs> I mean, you didn't invent that. Uh, no, no, I didn't invent that. I just wished it was practiced a little bit more than it's currently being practiced. I think a rabbi is a political job uh, and I think to a certain extent uh, except for the Haredi communities or the very religious communities you're led by lay boards who have lay concerns and those concerns often are political concerns uh, not necessarily spiritual ones uh, I think this is across the board in all institutions I mean if you can look at um, larger Jewish institutions, if you can look at seminaries, we see that they're often lay-led and the spiritual concerns or the religious concerns often take a secondary role to some of the primary religious concerns. And that's, that's really too bad. And one of the things that I wanted to focus more in on in my career was not politics. So I ran an organization. Let me... Let me go back a bit. I was living in Brooklyn, and I was the director of tradition and innovation. We lived a block from each other in, in Park Slope. In Park Slope, so Brooklyn. we know from Park Not Slope. Not at the same time. My wife wrote a piece uh, back in 2009 in the New York Times called "Flunking Out of the Co-op," which was a 2,500-word piece about uh, the interesting. Uh, culture, let's put it that way, that existed at the Park Slope Food Co-op, and. Um, let, let me just yes, say this, go. and you tell Fix. me if it's still true. Uh, when I was there working in politics, one of the things that was said frequently is, are there are more Jews in Brooklyn than any other place on the planet outside Jerusalem. Well, I think that, I think if you include, is it just Brooklyn? All, if you include all, all of New York, York City, maybe. you get that. But you, but I think what we found was all right. It's the 21st century. I became a rabbi after September 11th. I had written a screenplay. I was going to move out to Hollywood. And I had a law degree and all that sort of stuff. And I took the bar exam. And I optioned a screenplay out in Hollywood. And then September 11th happened mm -hmm. before I could move out there. And I found myself sleeping on an air mattress on the Upper West Side of Manhattan in my brother's apartment uh, with nothing to offer anyone but a JD and an option screenplay. And I felt like I had nothing to contribute to what was going on in that moment. And I decided at that point, I wasn't, I was going to find a way to serve, serve the people um, who were trying to experience the 21st century. And so I went to synagogue the following week. It was Rosh Hashanah. And I found the same type of Judaism, which was sort of a Judaism from the 1960s, from the 1970s, sort of geared towards a baby boomer aesthetic, the type of Judaism that a lot of the my peers had left. And I thought at that point, the contribution that I could make in this century was trying to figure out how to bring Judaism into the 21st century and actually speak to the people who were trying to live during that time. And I showed up at the seminary the following summer and uh, Rabbi Moore Shapiro was um, 
an old rabbi. He was in the graduating class, the last graduating class at the Lublin Yeshiva in Poland. He left Poland, survived the Holocaust, and for 55 years worked as a rabbi. And I wasn't interested in the page of Talmud. I had just shown up from law school. And I, I looked at him and I said, why'd you do it? I said, why live your life this way after what you saw in the Holocaust? And he said, Judaism rests on three things, God, Torah, and Israel. He said, I love Torah. I love to study. He says, I love Israel. I love the people. I love going to celebrations. Two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> and that is where I grew up with. I was born in 1976. The last quarter of the 20th century was one in which the emphasis grew up on Long Island mm -hmm. in New York. The emphasis was on getting good grades, studying really hard, supporting Israel, supporting Russian refuseniks and Jews around the world. This God stuff, eh, mm -hmm. that's for people who perhaps aren't as enlightened as we are. Let's not focus in on that. And what I found after September 11th is that so many of my peers wanted a spiritual insight. They were looking for religious understanding. But unfortunately, so many of the Jewish institutions weren't really catering to that. And so disproportionately, Jews went off to find spiritual endeavors in Peru, taking psychedelics, or at Burning Man, or following different bands around because they were looking for a spiritual insight that was not being provided to them by their overly political, overly intellectualized Jewish institutions. And so what I tried to do in a large part of my career was, you mentioned my organization that I started in Brooklyn, which called Because Jewish. So I, I thought, well, all of the other reasons that we hear for why be Jewish, be Jewish because of the Holocaust, be Jewish because of your grandchildren, be Jewish because of your grandparents, or be Jewish because of global warming. These were all just agendas that were tacked on to the back. I said, why not just because Jewish mm -hmm. with no agenda attached to it at all? Uh, and that was very successful until 2016 happened. Uh, and then after Trump was elected president of the United States, uh, I found that there was a large emphasis to um, maybe make the organization more political, to show up and to fight Trump. In, in or to, reaction. To in what? reaction to that. And all of the the juice amongst the... I mean, I'm not Orthodox, right? All of the juice amongst the non-Orthodox folks was to fight Trump's presidency. And I still just wanted to do because Jewish. Mm -hmm. I didn't want it to become a political organization. Uh, and as a result of that, um, we had uh, a difficult time trying to maintain that niche as the world just, everything was downstream from politics. Absolutely everything. Religion, prayer, it all, it all came from a political point of view. Well, I'm going to talk about how the community has changed now, but just let me ask you one quick question about Trump. So part of the division there was, was you know, Trump had all the Zionists. Zionists has a lot, a lot of roots in Texas, and he had all that support. So was that, how did that manifest itself in the community? Uh, I mean, so it, it manifested itself where you had... Well, that's a hard question. It's a hard question just because of the nature of who Trump was, because you saw so many of the people who had previously... Also a New Yorker. All, so also 
grown up up around uh, uh, Jewish Trump community. is sui generis, right? There's something about Trump that is hard to quantify and hard right. to put into words and triggered people mm -hmm. in such a fashion that it didn't matter if he had a good position on Israel. It didn't matter if he moved the embassy to Jerusalem. Everything was going to be, it's like if he said the sky was blue, people So the would Abraham argue. Accords didn't make a difference. Uh, it didn't make a dent at all in terms of what I'm seeing from, I guess, liberal Zionist Jews who just would find some reason to undercut the Abraham Accords. But what about now? So yeah, well, now it's a different world. Yes. Since October 7, how has... Uh, how have the factions developed or realigned? We haven't figured it out yet, Sherry. It is still in movement. And I think the plates, the tectonic plates, are beginning to shift. And we have a few sides. We have the people who say, I'm not surprised. I told you so. I said this was going to happen. Those people are not super helpful at the moment, even though they were right mm -hmm. and... I don't know, maybe I fell into that category in my best, uh -huh. but maybe not. Uh, uh, and then you have other people um, who are still sort of, um, you know, anti-Zionist. You have people who are using Jewish ritual objects and protesting on behalf of um, a ceasefire um, on with Palestinian causes, uh, using taluses and, uh, and Hanukkiahs and other ritual objects for the sake of attacking Israel. Uh, and then you have most of the Jews who are experiencing a type of cognitive dissonance that they've yet to really settle in from. I think I mentioned this story to you the other day. A friend of mine called me from New York and she said she was terrified. She's never experienced a type of anti-Semitism. She feels it in her kids' schools. And she says, how are you in Texas? And I said, you know, all things considered, not bad. And she says, well, no abortion in Texas. I said, yeah, no jihad either. <laughs> and so that's sort of the balance that people uh -huh. are trying to figure out. And I, I think we've talked a lot about it just as a culture, but I think that the testimony of those three university presidents in front of Congresswoman Stefanik is a uh, a breaking point in terms of Jewish understanding of where they are. The joke I was making was, you know, when you were a kid on Long Island, where was the temple? You didn't want to go to temple, right? That wasn't like the ultimate place to go to, right? To become a rabbi wasn't the dream of a lot of Jewish parents back then. But what was the dream was to go to Harvard, okay? That was clear as day, to go to MIT, to get into Penn. That was the cathedral to get into because that's where that's where the real value was to Which be found had and that shattered. a long history of anti-semitism it had a long history but it was about see a lot of this has to do with assimilation a lot of it has to do with acceptance and um i think the shocking testimony which is shocking i mean i just i was blown away by watching i mean your first reaction is to are you sure? And then the congresswoman tries to give them a second chance to clear them up. And they just could not be human in that circumstance. There was some weird smirks going on from some of the university presidents that didn't make any sense to me. I was thinking because of, it was odd. Why were they, what are they smirking about? Unlike what you're talking about, my suspicion is the smirking is they don't talk with Republicans. So this is probably the first Republican person 
that they'd had a conversation with. Uh, so that, so she was not due any respect. I, I've heard this. So that's a small part of it. I've heard this from people like, well, Elise Stefanik is no. And I'm, I'm saying, and I wrote back, I said, I don't care what Elise Stefanik's politics are. She's Queen Esther. Okay, you have to understand the story of Queen Esther is the woman who stands up and calls out the anti-Jewish sentiment for what it is in the place of power at the risk of her own self to make it apparent to everybody else what's hiding behind the curtain. That's what Congresswoman Stefanik did. She is Queen Esther. I don't really care what her other political positions are. That's irrelevant uh -huh. to me. We needed someone to be Queen Esther in that moment. And the light that it's shown on higher education, on DEI, on what's become of some of our institutions, I, I don't think we've, I don't think we've uh, metabolized it as a Jewish community just yet. So that's still part of the dissonance. People looked at that, and yesterday we talked about the vote in Congress. Yeah, where uh, thirteen Democrats voted against condemning anti-Semitism. Again, looks like an easy vote. Ninety-five. Uh, Democrats supported it, and 92 voted present. And I, I saw an analysis, the Washington Post, I'm looking here, the Washington Post did an analysis. The 13 that voted against it were in districts where Biden got almost 50% of the vote. So they felt safe doing that. The 32 who voted present were in districts where... It's right. unpopular to support Jewish people. Right, It's yeah. unpopular, and this is what I found, sort of, on the coasts, it's immoral for Jews to defend themselves. Because? Self because how dare they defend themselves? It was an odd thing. It would happen during the pandemic. It happened during other times. The idea that a Jewish person should stand up for themselves... Um, is, you know, let's take, for example, the, the second gentleman. All right. So the second gentleman just wrote a which tweet. Which would be the vice president's husband. Which would be just wrote a tweet about the holiday of Hanukkah. So this is what he says. He says, the story of Hanukkah and the story of the Jewish people has always been one of hope and resilience. In the Hanukkah story, the Jewish people were forced into hiding. No one thought that they would survive or that the last few drops of oil would last, but they survived and the oil kept burning. Okay, so that's not, so first of all, that's not the story of Hanukkah, but it's fascinating that that's his frame. So if you give me, can I just take sure, two minutes? Yeah. Let me explain the story of Hanukkah. Two All minutes. Right. We have a clock here. Two minutes. In the year 332, <laughs> Alexander the Great takes over the whole region, uh -huh. and that whole area um, undergoes, for the next 150 years, a process of becoming more Greek, which the historians called Hellenization. Mm -hmm. So we added uh, Greek philosophy, or you put gymnasiums as a part of the culture. You brought in Greek gods. In the year 175... This kind of blows up the colonizer theory, too, also, oh. but go ahead. <laughs> Right? I mean, uh, right, we're about to celebrate Christmas, which is about a Jewish baby being born 2,000 right. years ago. So that's, that's correct. But in the year 175, the high priest in Jerusalem, uh, his name is Yehoshua. What does he do? He changes his name to Jason. Right? He changes his name to Jason. He takes control of the temple and in cahoots with uh, the leaders, the Greek rulers of the time, begins to adapt the holy temple to, all right, so maybe we'll have a spigot with a pig. Maybe we'll have some idols in here. Maybe Jason builds a, a gymnasium. He begins to adopt all of these practices and make them Jewish. 
And what ha what's the Jewish response of that? Well, you know, for the most part, people went along, especially the aristocracy who had what to lose. Mm -hmm. And then around 168, Antiochus comes in and says no more Jewish rituals can be practiced here. It all has to be Greek going forward. Um, and people continue to go along with it because to, to a certain extent, this, they had their vested interests. It's not unlike my grandmother, bless her memory, bless her memory, who would bring us apple pies on July 4th and who never spoke a word of Yiddish. She wanted to be American, 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 right? That mm -hmm. was what she wanted to be. And Yiddish was embarrassing. Okay, so back in 107, 168 BCE, right? People wanted to be Greeks. And they began to worship as if they were Greeks. But then you had the Maccabees. And the Maccabees said, look at all of these things that they've brought into our temple. Look at DEI. Look at these technologies. They've larded up all of our temple with all of these other foreign gods. We want to rise up against a much larger enemy, the Greeks, and our own people to say we need to rededicate our temple to the worship. So Hanukkah means rededication because the Maccabees went into the temple, they got rid of all the foreign idols and the foreign gods, and they rededicated it to the practice of Judaism. Mm -hmm. That's the story. The story is not about them hiding out and being victims. And, and by the way, the, the oil, they lit the menorah to rededicate the temple. It was supposed to last for one day, but the rededication ceremony lasted for eight days. All right, so that's the story. But the second gentleman interprets it as if the Maccabees were victims because in his worldview, we Jews have to be victims in order to garner sympathy. When the story is the opposite, which was the Maccabees refused to play the role of the victim and that they were going to stake out and make sure that they could recapture what had been taken from them. So it's just a fascinating frame that we begin to see some of our stories coming back to us, even through Jewish leaders and through Jewish personalities. It's really important that you laid that out, and that is the frame. I, I, someone asked me earlier this, after, uh, earlier this morning, I was on an interview, and he said, do you think that those college presidents, that were they speaking their own truth, or had they just been briefed by lawyers? And it's like, no, that is the way they view it. the world. That's right. And I think one of the things that perhaps the first gentleman is trying to do and that that you've even seen in their apologies is to figure out, well, where do we put, if the world is divided between oppressed and oppressors, where do we put Jews? You know, because they're not really another race and they're not an ethnicity. Are we? Is this religious discrimination we're yep. talking about? How do we get them in that hierarchy? And um, I experienced exactly this in in San Francisco. So uh -huh. the uh, the Jewish Community Relations uh, Board of the Bay Area put together a plan. I I think it was after the Pittsburgh shooting, and it was called Here I Am. And they had a, a big assembly, uh, and they got a whole bunch of California representatives and local Bay Area representatives to come to support the Jewish community and to launch this new initiative called Here I Am, in which Jews around the Bay Area would record TikToks of themselves saying, oh, I was spit on for being a Jew, or I experienced anti-Semitism in this way. And when we shared that, the thinking was all of these other oppressed minority groups would come to support us and that we would then find safety 
or political power through linking arms with other similarly oppressed and discriminated people. And so the more we showed or shared our victim status, the more we could align with these other oppressed minorities. Uh, and I remember I was at this gathering and I turned to the man sitting next to me who was grew up in the other side of the world mm -hmm. uh, as a Jew. And I said, where you come from? Would they have handled sort of anti-Semitism in this way? And he said, no, we would have gotten guns and guarded our temples. <laughs> and I said, right. And then he said to me, but this is better. No. And, and that question sticks with me, especially yesterday when I saw that in Oakland, they took an 11 foot menorah, they tore it down and they threw it into the San Francisco Bay and scribbled a whole bunch of anti-Semitism right there where it was. So, no, maybe that approach is not better. Um, and you put your finger right on it. And I wasn't an expert in the ethnic studies curriculum in California, but I did try to read through it to understand what the point was that we were trying to get across. And you're right. The Jewish people have never fit into any of those categories, either as a, a, are we a race or the Jewish people are religion. Um, it's hard to answer any of those definitively. Sometimes Jewish people are a race. Sometimes Jewish people are a people. Sometimes we are a religion. Those categories don't necessarily apply with Jews. Uh, and yet I saw in that political framework a need to find where the Jew fits in the current DEI structure. Where do we place the Jew? On the top? Is the Jew white? Is the Jew not white? What about an African-American Jewish person? Where does that person fit? None of the categories worked or made any sense, but there was a strong feeling of, we'll go along to get along. This is the way that we can find our role in this century. This is the way that we can be safe by linking arms with other people who have been uh, similarly discriminated against. Uh, and I think we've seen that that's not going to work, that that approach is um, foolhardy. Uh, and when... Uh, the stuff hits the fan, uh, turns out that a lot of those um, other folks won't, won't be by our side as we intended they might be. Well, and, and that's why I believe, agree with you, that the testimony of the presidents was so powerful because the end game there says, no, we're not judging people by their identity group. People should be judged as individuals. This as was the most troublesome as, part as, in, as individuals, the most troublesome part of that. Whole, you know, I think there are past injustices that should be redressed. Sure, absolutely. And I think, you know, I, 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 I grew up as a liberal Democrat on Long Island and my parents took me to Dorchester to the JFK library and it was a cathedral, right? That that is the environment uh, that I grew up in. But I, I think we're finding now um, uh, that the, the, the winds have shifted uh, a little bit and um, it's becoming a little bit more precarious. And I think we, we, we still want to believe that Harvard is Harvard. We still want to believe that MIT is MIT. We've, we've sent our kids there. We've aspired to that. Just the other day, my, I have a daughter in seventh grade and I was trying to talk her out of going to college. Yeah. Cause she gets great grades. 
she she watches you know shows and she sees universities and in movies and she wants that experience and she wants to be a learner and i'm like well you know if you have something in particular you want to learn or a university that you can explore that and i said also the ivy leagues and i realized i was telling her exactly the opposite of what my mother told mm -hmm. me when I was 12, like the exact opposite lessons. The old lessons were go to Harvard, get a Harvard degree. I mean, my grandmother, again, I, I hate to pick on my grandmother of blessed memory, but when I went to become a rabbi, the first thing she said, but you're a lawyer, right? There is something about that status and being accepted for the Jewish people that, right. that, that seeing the corruption at Harvard um, really hits us hard and makes us second guess what exactly are our kids learning there. And I, you know, I, I really liked your piece uh, that you wrote. If I can, if I can quote your piece on the, on the three university presidents, because I see a danger now of us trying to be, uh, censorious, right? Likes to begin to censor things out. And I, I don't think that that's the answer either. I don't think that was the lesson of the the three university presidents i think the lesson was the double standard which is we're going to go out of our way right if you're defending someone who has a different body if you're if you're saying something against someone with a different body shape right you can't say that on campus but if they're a jew you can you can say it on campus because there is some i think we're learning that it's it's it is sort of okay to be anti-semitic on a certain level and that that is below the surface in a way that perhaps because I guess because we've done okay in this country that we've 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 uh, we've haven't seen, and I think October seventh and the university presidents brought it back to us in in a way that this generation has not fully metabolized just yet. It's it's a, an amazing thing if you if you glorify not doing well. I mean, we understand in talking about education, we certainly understand it here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation that not everyone starts at the same place. That's why we've been fighting for 35 years for school choice, so that parents can send their kids to schools that will prepare them to get into university. You really can't try to correct that once you get to university and you bring some kid in and you can't do basic math. You've got to correct that below. Any, and I think we are all on board for that. Anything that any child needs to succeed in the world, they get that. They and get what that. we saw was there were certain children who were more privileged than other children. And this, you know, this is a harsh story, but, you know, we sent our children to a Jewish day school in San Francisco. Uh, and they, um, second to last day of school, said great news we're getting rid of uh, all the boys in the girls bathrooms going forward and go and uh, starting next year all the kids kindergarten through eighth grade will be sharing bathrooms together and i you know i had a girl uh, who was 10 at the time and i said how do you feel about that and she said i don't love it but i want to be inclusive and so for me that it's a beautiful thing for her to say uh, and it taught me that the key lesson was that sometimes girls have to give up their sense of privacy and comfort for the sake of the crowd. Right? That's kind of how I processed it. And so we went and we met with the, um, an official there and we said, can't you just have a bathroom for the boys, a bathroom for the girls, and then like the cool bathroom 
that everybody uses uh, for those kids who want a little more privacy or who are, you know, different mm -hmm. in some ways. And the response was no, because your children, uh, because the response was no, because we were told that the five and six year old non-binary children entering the school now were more likely to take their lives than my children were. And we know that's not true. Well, we know that's not true because in my own family history and the family history of my children, it's not true. Right. And when we pointed that out, we were told it's not about you. And the next day, a parent came up to my wife on the kindergarten playground and compared her to George Wallace and said, you're just like the segregationists from the 50s. And it snowballed. It snowballed from there. Because we had wanted our daughter to have a little bit of privacy in her bathroom. And she was not, there was a calculus, I guess, you know, as a, she did not come from one of those statuses that would, on a superficial level, you could see what, you, every individual needs to be treated based upon their own individuality. Absolutely. And to impose uh, the sins of the parents sins of the grandparents, to impose other factors that disregard the human being sitting in front of you is an anathema to every instinct in my body. Martin Luther King Jr. marched with Abraham Joshua Heschel, the great rabbi, to talk about the dignity of the individual. Uh, rabbi, Heschel, rabbi Heschel said that racism is an eye disease. It's an eye disease that causes you to discount the individual in front of you because of the color of their skin. And now we have Elon Musk is talking about mind viruses. It's a DEI mind virus that has us want to see someone based upon the superficial features that they have and a whole bunch of assumptions that go along with that. And that felt crushing as a parent to see my 10-year-old daughter and my seven-year-old son grew up in a world in which because of the color of their skin or because of their religious status, they weren't going to be cut the benefit of the doubt and somehow they were going to be less equal than some other children. Yeah, it's, 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 it's the road to crazy town uh, in glorifying uh, the, uh, the oppressed and by oppressed, it doesn't necessarily mean that you as an individual were oppressed. Maybe your great-great-grandfather was oppressed. If you glorify that, and then what seems to have happened is the DEI has fostered this suspicion against, as you say, people who do well. So that would be white people. At Texas A&M University, the DEI officer pronounced that they would no longer hire any Asian people there because Asians seem to be doing pretty well. So then they're off off the list, completely discounting exactly what you're saying, which is, as, as uh, thankfully Governor Greg Abbott says, in Texas we hire people solely based on their merit. I, it's astonishing to me how that became out of fashion in Jewish circles. And I, I would have this conversation to folks uh, about some of these DEI rules. Um, and, and, and people would say, well, you know, when I moved here, you know, or when my family moved here back in the 30s or in the 40s or when they moved here, we were able to blend in. We were white. We didn't suffer that discrimination. And I benefited personally. People said to me, I benefited personally. And so if my kid has to suffer 
a little bit. And it's just, excuse me? Like, the kid is going to pay for your guilt for having privilege? <laughs> and that is the frame that I heard time and time again, that this, we have to, to a certain extent, punish our children because we've been benefited or our parents have been fed whether or not that's actually true by the way whether or not it's just it's based on often just superficial irrespective of what right. the actual immutable family immutable characteristics irrespective of the person who's actually in front of you and that that just became very hard for someone as a, um, a rabbi right mm -hmm. and i believe in the unique value of every single individual. The Talmud teaches that to save a life, it's as if you've saved the entire universe because inside of each individual life contains the capacity for a universe. I tell my kids, my, my son has this, he likes watching these philosophical problems, these trolley problems. You familiar with the trolley problem where the trolley's going towards 10 people and if you can hit a switch, it can only go towards one person. Do you hit that switch or do you not hit that switch? And my, my, my beautiful nine-year-old son wants to, which one's the right answer, daddy? So I said, I don't know. I said, Jewish thinking is different though. I said, because in Jewish thinking, each life has universal, infinite value. So what's infinity plus infinity? It's just infinity. So I can't make that numerical distinction between the one and the 10 because the one is worth everything and so so much of this framework dei framework is based around some math some algorithm which tells me the value of a child without actually having met that child and that i think is sinful as rabbi abraham joshua heschel might say in the few minutes that we have left, when you and I talked, we talked right before Hanukkah, and you said that you were talking uh, to a lot of people yeah. who couldn't decide whether or not they should display <laughs> their menorah. And now that we're, we're at the end. Uh, yes, this is the last day. Yeah. This is the last day. So how have the holidays been? I mean, I saw also horrible images. I saw the in L.A. the Palestinian flag draped over the community menorah. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering how the community Shocking. here in, in Austin has worked out, how, what you see across the country. Half and half, half and half. So there are people, um, I run a dad's group here uh, in Austin and I getting together a bunch of, you know, dads who have young children like myself. And there were some dads who were saying, I'm not gonna put my menorah in the window this year. I'm just not gonna bring that upon myself. It reminded me of when my mother, I keep picking on my mother and my mother's mother a little bit. But when we would walk around the city in Manhattan, she would say, take off your kippah. You don't want to make yourself a target. Uh, and so there is that mentality coming, creeping back in now, which is just keep your head down. Don't go out of your way to make yourself a target. And then I have somebody else. God bless him. He posted on social media a picture of his Hanukkah, his menorah in the window next to his AR-15. <laughs> and you know and so that was another texas response uh -huh. which is we're jewish we're proud too bad uh and so you're getting both of those responses i found hanukkah to be very depressing this year it more people i think showed up to celebrate hanukkah than i've experienced in a while but there was not that same joy i think we're still there's still 140 hostages that are still in Gaza. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. I've been comparing it on a superficial level. If you'll allow me to be a little sure. cheeky, if that's permissible. But if you've if you've seen the movie with Mel Gibson, the ransom movie, where the kid is held hostage, right? He famous line, "Give me back my son," right? Mm-hmm. If you remember that, you, you, it's hard to think clearly when your children are being held hostage. Right. It's hard to come up with political dissertations when that happens. And I think the most upsetting thing that I've seen is a lot of the people who are utilizing Jewish objects, Jewish rituals, Jewish holidays for the sake of making a political point about Zionism or about Judaism. I think I'm happy to engage in a philosophical discussion about um, the role that a state plays in Jewish life. But at the moment, I'm more concerned with the Jews who are actually there and who are being held hostage. And the disregard for that in order to make some sort of theological or philosophical or political point is sinful. And that is what we've been seeing rampant. Everybody has jumped on, not everybody, and I'm being hyperbolic and I apologize. And that is sort of a, there are a lot of people who have come out of the woodwork since October 7th and used it as an opportunity to make philosophical, theological, or political points while there are currently a civilization under fire and hostages being held. And that, uh, that just tells me more about them than it does about anything else, right? You have the people saying, not in our name. Who, who made it about you? <laughs> I don't understand. Not in your name. No one was thinking it was in your name, okay? <laughs> uh, but they're the ones who are making it about them and their political or their philosophical or their theological acts to grind. And it's the same thing. They're ignoring the human being who is at the middle of all of it. Rabbi Dan, thank you for joining us today. It's been a fascinating, fascinating discussion. Uh, Thank you for having me. Good to have you here. You can subscribe to this podcast at Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on X at Sylvester1630. If you'd like to receive my Ninth in Congress newsletter, you can sign up at the TPPF website, www.texaspolicy.com slash Ninth in Congress. Thank you.